This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Souls of Black Folk by W. E. B. Du Bois. Music and Text Recorded by Toria's Uncle. Chapter 8 Of the Quest of the Golden Fleece. But the brute said in his breast, Till the mills I grind have ceased, The riches shall be dust of dust, Dry ashes be the feast. On the strong and cunning few, Cynic favors I will strew, I will stuff their maw with overplus, Until their spirit dies. From the patient and the low, I will take the joys they know, they shall hunger after vanities, and still in hunger go. Madness shall be on the people, ghastly jealousies arise. Brother's blood shall cry on brother, up the dead and empty skies. William Vaughan Moody Have you ever seen a cotton field white with harvest, its golden fleece hovering above the black earth like a silvery cloud edged with dark green, its bold white signals waving like the foam of billows from Carolina to Texas across that black and human sea? I have sometimes half suspected that here the winged ram Chrysomalus left that fleece after which Jason and his Argonauts went vaguely wandering into the shadowy east three thousand years ago, and certainly one might frame a pretty and not far-fetched analogy of witchery and dragon's teeth and blood and armed men between the ancient and the modern quest of the golden fleece in the Black Sea. And now the golden fleece is found not only found, but in its birthplace woven, for the hum of the cotton mills is the newest and most significant thing in the New South today. All through the Carolinas and Georgia, away down to Mexico, rise these gaunt red buildings, bare and homely, and yet so busy and noisy withal, that they scarce seem to belong to the slow and sleepy land. Perhaps they sprang from dragon's teeth. So the cotton kingdom still lives, the world still bows beneath her scepter. Even the markets that once defied the parvenu have crept one by one across the seas, and then slowly and reluctantly but surely have started toward the black belt. To be sure, there are those who wag their heads knowingly and tell us that the capital of the cotton kingdom has moved from the black to the white belt, that the negro of today raises not more than half of the cotton crop, such men forget that the cotton crop has doubled, and more than doubled, since the era of slavery, 
and that, even granting their contention, the Negro is still supreme in a cotton kingdom larger than that on which the Confederacy builded its hopes. So the Negro forms today one of the chief figures in a great world industry, and this, for its own sake and in light of historic interest, makes the field hands of the cotton country worth studying. We seldom study the condition of the Negro today honestly and carefully. It is so much easier to assume that we know it all, or perhaps, having already reached conclusions in our own minds, we are loath to have them disturbed by fact. And yet how little we really know of these millions, of their daily lives and longings, of their homely joys and sorrows, of their real shortcomings and the meaning of their crimes. All this we can only learn by intimate contact with the masses, and not by wholesale arguments covering millions separate in time and space, and differing widely in training and culture. Today, then, my reader, let us turn our faces to the black belt of Georgia, and seek simply to know the condition of the black farm laborers of one county there. Here in 1890 lived 10,000 Negroes and 2,000 whites. The country is rich, yet the people are poor. The keynote of the black belt is debt, not commercial credit, but debt in the sense of continued inability on the part of the mass of the population to make income cover expense. This is the direct heritage of the South from the wasteful economies of the slave regime, but it was emphasized and brought to a crisis by the emancipation of the slaves. In 1860, Doherty County had 6,000 slaves worth at least two and a half millions of dollars. Its farms were estimated at three millions, making five and a half millions of property, the value of which depended largely on the slave system and on the speculative demand for land, once marvelously rich but already partially devitalized by careless and exhaustive culture. The war then meant a financial crash. In place of the five and a half millions of 1860, they remained in 1870 only farms valued at less than two millions. With this came increased competition in cotton culture from the rich lands of Texas. A steady fall in the normal price of cotton followed, from about 14 cents a pound in 1860 until it reached 4 cents in 1898. Such a financial revolution was it that involved the owners of the cotton belt in debt. And if things went ill with the master, how fared it with the man? The plantations of Doherty County in slavery days were not as imposing and aristocratic as those of Virginia. The big house was smaller and usually one-storied, and sat very near the slave cabins. Sometimes these cabins stretched off on either side like wings, sometimes only on one side forming a double row, or edging the road that turned into the plantation from the main thoroughfare. The form and disposition of the laborers' cabins throughout the Black Belt is today the same as in slavery days. Some live in the self-same cabins, others in cabins rebuilt on the sites of the old. All are sprinkled in little groups over the face of the land, centering about some dilapidated big house where the head tenant or agent lives. The general character and arrangement of these dwellings remains on the whole unaltered. There were in the county outside the corporate town of Albany about 1,500 Negro families in 1898. Out of these, only a single family occupied a house with seven rooms. Only 14 have five rooms or more. The mass live in one- and two-room homes. 
The size and arrangements of a people's homes are no unfair index of their condition. If then we inquire more carefully into these Negroes' homes, we find much that is unsatisfactory. All over the face of the land is the one-room cabin, now standing in the shadow of the big house, now staring at the dusty road, now rising dark and somber amid the green of cotton fields. It is nearly always old and bare, built of rough boards, and neither plastered nor sealed. Light and ventilation are supplied by the single door and by the square hole in the wall with its wooden shutter. There is no glass, porch, or ornamentation without. Within is a fireplace, black and smoky, and usually unsteady with age. A bed or two, a table, a wooden chest, and a few chairs compose the furniture, while a stray showbill or a newspaper makes up the decorations for the walls. Now and then one may find such a cabin kept scrupulously neat, with merry steaming fireplaces and hospitable door, but the majority are dirty and dilapidated, smelling of eating and sleeping, poorly ventilated, and anything but homes. Above all, the cabins are crowded. We have come to associate crowding with homes in cities almost exclusively. This is primarily because we have so little accurate knowledge of country life. Here in Doherty County, one may find families of eight and ten occupying one or two rooms, and for every ten rooms of house accommodation for the Negroes, there are twenty-five persons. The worst tenement abominations of New York do not have above twenty-two persons for every ten rooms. Of course, one small close room in a city without a yard is in many respects worse than the larger single country room. In other respects it is better. It has glass windows, a decent chimney, and a trustworthy floor. The single great advantage of the Negro peasant is that he may spend most of his life outside his hovel in the open fields. There are four chief causes of these wretched homes. First, long custom born of slavery has assigned such homes to Negroes. White laborers would be offered better accommodations, and might for that and similar reasons give better work. Second, the Negroes used to such accommodations do not as a rule demand better. They do not know what better houses mean. Thirdly, the landlords, as a class, have not yet come to realize that it is a good business investment to raise the standard of living among labor by slow and judicious methods, that a Negro laborer who demands three rooms and fifty cents a day would give more efficient work and leave a larger profit than a discouraged toiler herding his family in one room and working for thirty cents. Lastly, among such conditions of life, there are few incentives to make the laborer become a better farmer. If he is ambitious, he moves to town or tries other labor. As a tenant farmer, his outlook is almost hopeless, and following it as a makeshift, he takes the house that is given him without protest. In such homes, then, these Negro peasants live. The families are both small and large. There are many single tenants, widows and bachelors, and remnants of broken groups. The system of labor and the size of the houses both tend to the breaking up of family groups. The grown children go away as contract hands or migrate to town. The sister goes into service. And so one finds many families with hosts of babies and many newly married couples. 
but comparatively few families with half-grown and grown sons and daughters. The average size of Negro families has undoubtedly decreased since the war, primarily from economic stress. In Russia, over a third of the bridegrooms and over half of the brides are under twenty. The same was true of the antebellum Negroes. Today, however, very few of the boys and less than a fifth of the Negro girls under twenty are married. The young men marry between the ages of twenty-five and thirty-five, the young women between twenty and thirty. Such postponement is due to the difficulty of earning sufficient to rear and support a family, and it undoubtedly leads in the country district to sexual immorality. The form of this immorality, however, is very seldom that of prostitution, and less frequently that of illegitimacy than one would imagine. Rather, it takes the form of separation and desertion after a family group has been formed. The number of separated persons is thirty-five to the thousand, a very large number. It would, of course, be unfair to compare this number with divorce statistics, for many of these separated women are, in reality, widowed, were the truth known. And in other cases, the separation is not permanent. Nevertheless, here lies the seat of greatest moral danger. There is little or no prostitution among these Negroes, and over three-fourths of the families, as found by house-to-house -house investigation, deserve to be classed as decent people with considerable regard for female chastity. To be sure, the ideas of the mass would not suit New England, and there are many loose habits and notions. Yet the rate of illegitimacy is undoubtedly lower than in Austria or Italy, and the women as a class are modest. The plague spot in sexual relations is easy marriage and easy separation. This is no sudden development, nor the fruit of emancipation. It is the plain heritage from slavery. In those days, Sam, with his master's consent, took up with Mary. No ceremony was necessary, and in the busy life of the great plantations of the Black Belt it was usually dispensed with. If now the master needed Sam's work in another plantation, or in another part of the same plantation, or if he took a notion to sell the slave, Sam's married life with Mary was usually unceremoniously broken, and then it was clearly to the master's interest to have both of them take new mates. This widespread custom of two centuries has not been eradicated in thirty years. Today Sam's grandson takes up with a woman without license or ceremony. They live together decently and honestly, and are to all intents and purposes man and wife. Sometimes these unions are never broken until death. But in too many cases, family quarrels, a roving spirit, a rival suitor, or perhaps more frequently the hopeless battle to support a family, leads to separation, and a broken household is the result. The Negro Church has done much to stop this practice, and now most marriage ceremonies are performed by the pastors. Nevertheless, the evil is still deep-seated, and only a general raising of the standard of living will finally cure it. Looking now at the county black population as a whole, it is fair to characterize it as poor and ignorant. Perhaps ten percent compose the well-to-do and the best of the laborers, while at least nine percent are thoroughly lewd and vicious. The rest, over eighty percent, are poor and ignorant, fairly honest and well-meaning, plodding, and to a degree shiftless, with some but not great sexual looseness. Such class lines are by no means fixed. They vary, one might almost say, with the price of cotton. The degree of ignorance cannot easily be expressed. We may say, for instance, that nearly two-thirds of them cannot read or write, 
This but partially expresses the fact. They are ignorant of the world about them, of modern economic organization, of the function of government, of individual worth and possibilities, of nearly all those things which slavery in self-defense had to keep them from learning. Much that the white boy imbibes from his earliest social atmosphere forms the puzzling problems of the black boy's mature years. America is not another word for opportunity to all her sons. It is easy for us to lose ourselves in details in endeavoring to grasp and comprehend the real condition of a mass of human beings. We often forget that each unit in the mass is a throbbing human soul. Ignorant it may be, and poverty-stricken, black and curious in limb and ways and thoughts, and yet it loves and hates, it toils and tires, it laughs and weeps its bitter tears, and looks in vague and awful longing at the grim horizon of its life. All this even as you and I. These black thousands are not in reality lazy. They are improvident and careless. They insist on breaking the monotony of toil with a glimpse at the great town world on Saturday. They have their loafers and their rascals, but the great mass of them work continuously and faithfully for a return, and under circumstances that would call forth equal voluntary effort from few, if any, other modern laboring class. Over eighty percent of them, men, women, and children, are farmers. Indeed, this is almost the only industry. Most of the children get their schooling after the crops are laid by, and very few there are that stay in school after the spring work has begun. Child labor is to be found here in some of its worst phases, as fostering ignorance and stunting physical development. With the grown men of the county there is little variety in work. Thirteen hundred are farmers, and two hundred are laborers, teamsters, etc., including twenty-four artisans, ten merchants, twenty-one preachers, and four teachers. This narrowness of life reaches its maximum among the women. Thirteen hundred and fifty of these are farm laborers, one hundred are servants and washerwomen, leaving sixty-five housewives, eight teachers, and six seamstresses. Among this people there is no leisure class. We often forget that in the United States over half the youth and adults are not in the world earning incomes, but are making homes, learning of the world, or resting after the heat of strife. But here ninety-six percent are toiling. No one with leisure to turn the bare and cheerless cabin into a home. No old folks to sit beside the fire and hand down traditions of the past. Little of careless, happy childhood and dreaming youth. The dull monotony of daily toil is broken only by the gaiety of the thoughtless and the Saturday trip to town. The toil, like all farm toil, is monotonous, and here there are little machinery and few tools to relieve its burdensome drudgery. But with all this it is work in the pure open air, and this is something in a day when fresh air is scarce. The land on the whole is still fertile, despite long abuse. For nine or ten months in succession the crops will come, if asked. Garden vegetables in April, grain in May, melons in June and July, hay in August, sweet potatoes in September, and cotton from then to Christmas. 
and yet on two-thirds of the land there is but one crop, and that leaves the toilers in debt. Why is this? Away down the Basin Road, where the broad, flat fields are flanked by great oak forests, is a plantation many thousands of acres it used to run, here and there, and beyond the great wood. Thirteen hundred human beings here obeyed the call of one, were his, in body and largely in soul. One of them lives there yet, a short, stocky man. His dull brown face seamed and drawn, and his tightly curled hair gray-white. The crops? Just tolerable, he said, just tolerable. Getting on? No. He wasn't getting on at all. Smith of Albany furnishes him, and his rent is eight hundred pounds of cotton. Can't make anything at that. Why didn't he buy land? Huh. Takes money to buy land, and he turns away. Free. The most piteous thing amid all the black ruin of wartime, amid the broken fortunes of the masters, the blighted hopes of mothers and maidens, and the fall of an empire. The most piteous thing amid all this was the black freedman who threw down his hoe because the world called him free. What did such a mockery of freedom mean? Not a cent of money, not an inch of land, not a mouthful of victuals, not even ownership of the rags on his back. Free! On Saturday, once or twice a month, the old master before the war used to dole out bacon and meal to his negroes, and after the first flush of freedom wore off, and his true helplessness dawned on the freedman, he came back and picked up his hoe, and old master still doled out his bacon and meal. The legal form of service was theoretically far different. In practice, task-work, or cropping, was substituted for daily toil in gangs, and the slave gradually became a metayer, or tenant on shares, in name, but a laborer with indeterminate wages in fact. Still the price of cotton fell, and gradually the landlords deserted their plantations, and the reign of the merchant began. The merchant of the black belt is a curious institution, part banker, part landlord, part banker, and part despot. His store, which used most frequently to stand at the crossroads and became the center of a weekly village, has now moved to town, and thither the negro tenant follows him. The merchant keeps everything—clothes and shoes, coffee and sugar, pork and meal, canned and dry goods, wagons and plows, seed and fertilizer, and what he has not in stock he can give you an order for at the store across the way. Here then comes the tenant, Sam Scott, after he has contracted with some absent landlord's agent for hiring forty acres of land. He fingers his hat nervously until the merchant finishes his morning chat with Colonel Saunders and calls out, Well, Sam, what do you want? Sam wants him to furnish him, i.e., to advance him food and clothing for the year, and perhaps seed and tools, until his crop is raised and sold. If Sam seems a favorable subject, he and the merchant go to a lawyer, 
and Sam executes a chattel mortgage on his mule and wagon in return for seed and a week's rations. As soon as the green cotton leaves appear above the ground, another mortgage is given on the crop. Every Saturday, or at longer intervals, Sam calls upon the merchant for his rations. A family of five usually gets about thirty pounds of fat-side pork and a couple of bushels of cornmeal a month. Besides this, clothing and shoes must be furnished. If Sam or his family is sick, there are orders on the druggist and doctor. If the mule wants shoeing, an order on the blacksmith, etc. If Sam is a hard worker and crops promise well, he is often encouraged to buy more, sugar, extra clothes, perhaps a buggy. But he is seldom encouraged to save. When cotton rose to ten cents last fall, the shrewd merchants of Doherty County sold a thousand buggies in one season, mostly to black men. The security offered for such transactions, a crop and chattel mortgage, may at first seem slight. And indeed the merchants tell many a tale of shiftlessness and cheating, of cotton picked at night, mules disappearing, and tenants absconding. But on the whole the merchant of the black belt is the most prosperous man in the section. So skillfully and so closely has he drawn the bonds of the law about the tenant that the black man has often simply to choose between pauperism and crime. He waves all homestead exemptions in his contract. He cannot touch his own mortgaged crop, which the laws put almost in the full control of the landowner and of the merchant. When the crop is growing, the merchant watches it like a hawk. As soon as it is ready for market, he takes possession of it, sells it, pays the landowner his rent, subtracts his bill for supplies, and if, as sometimes happens, there is anything left, he hands it over to the black serf for his Christmas celebration. End of chapter 8, part 1